water elemental druid. That's what, just like a druid, but he's a water elemental. That's what I would be. Like an actual okay. elemental. Like a, like a puddle that casts spells. I'm going to be a gnome summoner with the flick mace, and I'm also going to multi-class into gunslinger. I am going to be like a knight, but like a unicorn knight who has like white wings and has like a unicorn horn who like casts like a protective halo. Kind of like a paladin situation. Guys, I I, I just bought Rise of the Rune Lords. Um, you all meet in a tavern in a town infested with goblins. Sure. Sure. I'll make it work. this week's episode of Modified Roles, uh, with the chaos crew of myself, Sarah, Jess, Christian, and Rainy, and we are talking about uh, pre-written adventures, published modules, and uh, all of that stuff. Yeah, similar to our last Modified Roles, which was how to prep and run one-shots, this is going to take it a bit further and talk about how to prep and run published material. Uh, adventure paths for the Pathfinder, Starfinder folks. I don't know what they're called in 5e. Campaigns, I think? Oh, campaigns, yeah. I think it's just campaigns. Um, yeah. Um, 5e but, folks, uh, uh, complain to us and tell us where we're wrong. Yeah. But basically, you know, you know you're going to be running a pretty long-form game. So how do you prep for something that you know is going to go so long? The biggest pitfall and the first piece of advice I would give is don't over prep, but do read the adventure. <laughs> it seems easy. It seems straightforward to say, just read it. I'm not telling you to memorize it. You know, I'm not telling you to do anything crazy, but maybe do a quick outline skim of like each chapter or however it's broken down. So you get big, broad strokes to understand um, at least the flow. I think it's important that, you know, certain published campaigns like the Dungeons and Dragons ones that are out now have, have plot points that are a little more railroady. Uh, and, um, you know, be familiar with those plot points because one of the things that you're going to find is probably your characters are going to go off those rail, those tracks on that railroad really, really quickly. And you're going to have oh, yeah. to find a way to either get them back on or, or make what they do work with the story. Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing is that what I usually look for in each chapter is what is the major point that gets you to the next story point? And I make sure to have that on hand. So whatever happens, whatever gets derailed or whatever the main point is, I, I try and make sure that that is the point that I'm going to try and hit. I can try and move them what different from how the story is leading, maybe from the module, but I just want to make sure I hit that point so I can get to the next chapter. And then I keep doing that until the end. That's a super good piece of advice that uh, I love that because you're pretty much just hitting the hook for the next part. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, they can get off that straight line railroad as much as they want, as long as you have that hook, like the stage hook where people just pull, you know what I mean? As long as you can reach them from wherever they get to and yank them back on to the next big, big actual part of the adventure. That's a really good point, Jess. So, uh, yeah. And I had a, I had a question is just that. What is, do you guys have a process for how you read the adventure? Are you guys one of those people who can read like the adventure all the way through once and like you're good? You know, like what the main idea of the storyline is and you can just go all the way through. Like I have to read the adventure probably, I read like 
four or five times. I have to read a lot. I read it once through to get the main idea of the story. I read it to kind of figure out the flow of the story and what those major plot hooks are. And then I read an outline. And then I read before I actually run the adventure. I, I read excessively. And that's mostly because I have a terrible memory. So I usually forget by the time I get there. <laughs> but like, I know Amber, she's not here today, but she can read it once. And she's like, good. She's like, good. She can read it once and then skim briefly before she runs the adventure, and she's like, good. I think, so it, depends. I think it depends very much on what it is that you're running. Uh, so if it's a more linear sort of campaign, you know, where it's, again, I'm not picking on Dungeons & Dragons, but if it's one of like the Dungeons & Dragons campaigns where it's just like, hey, you go here, you do the thing, then you find this out, and you go and do the next thing at the next town – then, yeah, you can read that once and you just, you know, kind of skim it before you run. Again, just to remind yourself. If it's something that's more complex, where it's like a example, a, a mystery campaign or uh, a campaign that, you know, I'm thinking of, which is one of the more famous Call of Cthulhu campaigns, Masks of, and I'm going to butcher this, Nyalarthotep, I think. Um, Pretty good. I think so. Uh, it's an unpronounceable elder to God. You know, th good. there are six chapters. You don't have to do them in any particular order. There's kind of an order that most people follow based upon the clues that they find. But the clues are the clues and people can make logical jumps and go to somewhere you didn't expect. So you need to read that adventure more and know more about it when you're running it because people can go in a direction that you didn't expect, like I said before, but it's still something that's published, right? Something that's still within there. You know, you might expect them to go to Hong Kong, but they don't. They wind up going to Australia. And so you have to know Australia, right? Uh, so with something like that, I would, read, I would read it through once to get the general idea of it. And then I would just probably reread just whatever chapter they're in right now and make sure I know that really, really well. So then I know where they might go next. Right. I would add to that. Um, I typically, I read it once and I make outlines. You guys have seen, a few of you have gotten a peek behind uh, the screen of just how crazy my note taking is. I love is. Rainy's outlines. They're so beautiful. Yeah. Rainy's outlines are amazing. Yeah, I tend to over organize. Um, but the way I do it is I'll I will read it, the adventure, I'll make notes, I will like star spots where I think this is a really cool moment. Um, and what I do is I will revisit those in my prep before like each session. I have a good idea of like what we're going to do in the, in whatever the next session is, right? Have an expectation of what you can get done session to session so you don't over prep. But um, I also use that to, and this segues to one of the points we have here, um, by outlining and putting major points, like Jess said, having that hook to the next spot. Um, as long as you have major points kind of like in your mind, you can use that information to tailor the story to your players. One of the biggest things is just because you're running an adventure, an adventure that's a published adventure, it's written, and there's an expectation of how it's going to be played, that does not mean you have to play it that way. You have every right in the world to change that story, change the enemies, change whatever you want. Change the If it's going to be a better story for the characters that your players are playing, right? Um, example, um, I'm running Storm King's Thunder, D&D 5e, for the library right now. And I have a group of players who have really done well at making a cohesive party. And as I let them have moments to talk amongst themselves, they drop these little like, oh, well, like I had in my mind that my character had this, this and this. I write that down and I go, where can I uh, tie this little nugget of information to the bigger story? 
and it's changed a lot of things um, as far as how this adventure is written. Um, Storm King's Thunder is the most sandboxy of 5e adventures, which allows this a little more than other games because it's you can put stuff anywhere. Um, but I even changed an entire one of the giant strongholds. The Cloud Giant stronghold was not well written, in my opinion, for what my characters wanted to do. So I turned it into an art gallery, heist, savior, dragon friend kind of thing. Um, it was like a prison break. Uh, and it was really cool uh, how we changed that and made it a little more interesting to them. And it's actually going to have pretty big ramifications for, like Jess said, the ending. Um, I have, uh, just from what the decisions they've made, have made me go back to my notes and say, this would be a way cooler way to handle this moment or this villain or this whole story. The ending might be radically different from what other... So if they go talk to other people and say, oh, I've played Storm King's Thunder too. Oh, when your group did this and my friends would be like, we didn't, we didn't do that. That's okay. The game, the important, I think the important thing to, to take away from that, Rainy, is always remember that the game is what happens at the table when you're playing with your friends. The event, the, then so is the adventure. What's written in the book is just kind of like a guideline for it. But what happens when you're playing is, is the story. That's the game. Yes. That's what's important, and that's what's more valid than anything that you read in the book. Well said. Yeah, the story is what your players make of it. It's not what's written in that book. Those are just prompts. And, Those are just ideas. And there's some things that your players will really latch on to that you never expected. And so it gives you a chance to <laughs> uh, to expand on those things in a, a may that, way that becomes meaningful for both the players and the characters. Um, like townhouses? Seems like you have an example there. <laughs> Do I ever? I've got two and a half years of examples, Rainy, but I'll <laughs> summarize. Uh, no, so I, as I've said a million times before, um, I'm running Rise of the Rune Lords half for the past two and a half years, and I absolutely love it. Uh, Christian is one of my chaos makers, so you will hear a lot of things from his perspective as well. Um, but one of the things that I am super, super happy about that went really well is uh, my players and my characters fell in love with Sandpoint. Sandpoint, if anyone that's uh, ran or played in Rise, having everyone fall in love with Sandpoint is a big deal. Because you keep coming back to Sandpoint. Everything comes back. And it's such an important town and location. And my players and characters really fell in love with it and interacted so much with a lot of the NPCs. And so it gave me a lot of time to flesh out the NPCs and have those interpersonal moments between the characters and the NPCs and the characters and each other. Um, and there's, you know, plots kind of going on in the background with the NPCs amongst each other and the town. And so, but it's none of this is written in the book. So by seeing what my players liked, I was able to incorporate a lot more into it and make the world feel a lot more alive than it had been previously. Um, I also, <laughs> with the townhouse, um, one of the ways that I got my party into Magnamar for the second chapter was, um, if anyone has played, you'll know Amiko Kaijitsu, the family has a townhouse in Magnamar. If you don't, there's a prominent NPC in the first chapter that has a townhouse in the second chapter. I'll leave it at that. Um, and <laughs> my players decided to spend, was it four sessions, Christian? Four sessions. Four sessions. Uh, they were like, wow, this place is old and untouched. Um, we're going to fix it. My druid literally regrew the garden. <laughs> Regrew the garden. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that there was like sustainable food sources there. 
like they cleaned up the place. I swear they read the wallpaper. I don't know if I'm remembering this correctly or not. I don't but... know if we did that, but we, I think we did. I, I, we installed the security system. Yes, like a security, <laughs> like, but they were so into it. So I was like, sure, I am now developing the local merchant scene in Magnamar. So, so just find what your players love and run with it. So yeah, I was going to ask for that, like that was a great idea for your players to kind of fall in love with a town that was a major plot point for the campaign. And I'm wondering what are some other ways, like we started off opening with like this joke of how we had these, all these crazy characters, but how do you connect the players to the actual campaign that you're running, right? So like at the beginning, I usually try and give like a good, at least general premise of what the campaign is going to be like. So hopefully people connect to it and make characters that are for it. But how do you get your players to care about the storyline, whether they're personally connected or not? I think the most important thing, one of the biggest things that you can change in an adventure and probably the one you have to change the most often is how it begins in the, in these published adventures, because it's notoriously hard and i can say this from the writing side of this too i I understand why it happens but the beginning of adventures to get characters into adventures across all game systems usually just suck it's like hey you're in town this is going on there's a post on the wall blah 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 right and it's the same thing you know call of cthulhu the joke is like your rich uncle died and left you a mysterious book you know and and so they're all they're bad i mean and the problem is is they have to be bad because they have to be very general Right. You meet in a tavern is, is the other like trope. Right. Within our, own, mm-hmm. our games. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you when when you're sitting down and you're having this goes back all the way to our very first set, our very first podcast, have a really good session zero. Talk about this is the game we're running. How can we connect you to this? How, how can we get knives? Like Rainey says, right. Give me knives. How can I connect you to this story? Uh, wait, wait, what are knives? Knives are something <laughs> yeah. you give to the DM to cut you with basically. Yeah. They're, they're connections so... you have to the world. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'll give a really good example, uh, which I think, and this is an example of how it doesn't, it doesn't have to be this like 16 page detailed backstory, but when, when we were doing the Pathfinder game, when we started, it was the first time I ever met Sarah. I sat down in the library and made a character and she's like, oh, it's going to start in Sandpoint. I'm like, okay, great. I'm visiting my sister in Sandpoint. There you go. That's all we needed to have. I didn't really have much background on him beyond that. Because sometimes I like to just make a character and find out his background when we play. And that's what I did with him. Uh, but there's a connection. It was a connection to town. It gave him a reason to be there other than you wandered in seeking adventure. And a reason to care. Like his sister right. lives there. And a reason there. to care. You know, yeah. and, and I'll, another example, you know, with our, I think this is great. And I know I talk about this campaign a lot, the Hudson and Brand campaign I ran, the Call of Cthulhu, but it had a built-in, a great built-in opening, which is still a little cliche in that Hudson and Brand were detectives like Sherlock Holmes and Watson. They own this detective agency, Hudson and Brand, the inquiry agents of the obscure. They friggin' disappeared. Two of the characters in the campaign were distantly related to them and inherited the agency. So case number one Perfect. was like, find out what happened to them. And then, af- and then after that, the campaign is just like, hey, people just start showing up at the door like Sherlock Holmes being like, hey, I need help with this weird shit. And now they're in business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I would 100% say uh, getting players, characters invested is a session zero thing to do for sure. Um, let, give them. So your job as a DM in a session zero is to give them the pitch for the first bit, um, like what the hook is and what the big picture is. Um, without spoiling anything and then let them 
make their own connections. Knives, like Christian said, my favorite thing in the world. Um, I, if you don't give it to me, I'm going to ask you questions that make you have connections to the world that matter to your character. So that way I can use them to motivate them, you know, in times of, uh, in slow times. Um, another thing to do is even if you spend that session zero, coming up with ways that your characters are involved in the story as it is beginning to unfold or have reasons to be where the action is going to start or what have you, I would borrow from, uh, I've seen a lot of these in Dungeon World, but I know Powered by the Apocalypse games do them a lot. Surprise, surprise, Rainy Talks PBTA, but they're called campaign starters and they're kind of just uh, leading questions that you start the first session with. Uh, I've made jokes a lot about it where it's like, Rogue, what did you steal from this person that you, you know, that you shouldn't and, you know, uh, or like, you know, again, like Druid, like um, what strange uh, signs in nature led you to this place and like, what is it that, you know, um, what is it that it portends? You know, Wizard, what strange artifact are you searching for and why would it be around here? You know, um, and it just gives characters a chance to give you something to work with and also um, just pits them right into the action. So my next question is, have you guys ever – like how well do your players actually follow the campaign, right? Like have you ever run into a situa situation where your players were like way off from where the campaign was going? And what do you do then? Do you keep going, right, with that story in that direction or do you try and loop them back? I mean that's what I would do. I let them go to town. Um, let them get weird. And I'm actually going to use this to segue into one of our second points on our outline here, which is that's a perfect opportunity. Let them do some silly things. Use it to take a break. Let them have their fun. Let them play in the world. Let them, like we said, I think in one of our first episodes, the best thing as a GM or DM is watching your players play the game without you, right? If they're enjoying going off on a tangent and doing something stupid, great. That's the point. We're all having fun. You don't have to stress over it as DM because you can take that break, let them enjoy inhabiting their characters for a while, doing something else. If you have to challenge them and come up with a couple new encounters or whatever, sure. But what you can do during that break is find that hook, like you said, Jess, that will like yank them back. If it's an NPC and they're supposed to be in a, in a town that's not near them, well, all of a sudden that NPC is out of town trying to find their way back, something happened. Or you know what I mean? Like just a, a way to bring them back. Well, I, I have a, an alternative to that too, is that, you know, it's it's very important that your world, and I think this this applies a little bit more to, you know, maybe you're, you're out there and you're listening to us and you're a, a newer DM and you're running one of the, the Dungeons and Dragons campaigns that are more linear and your players have done that. And you're like, oh shit, what am I going to do? They're where, you know, you know, stuff is happening. I'm not that familiar with all of them, but you know, but, you know, stuff is happening out there, right? Stuff is happening. Stuff is still happening. That stuff's going to continue happening, right? So mm -hmm. if the Cult of the Dragon is doing something and your players are like, hey, we're not interested in that right now, that's perfectly valid in your game. Let them go off and do whatever it is they're interested in. But don't forget that the Cult of the Dragon is going to still continue doing their stuff. Maybe your pl your players are not around to stop them now. Yeah. Right? yeah. The, now, world, the world doesn't stop The world doesn't they do. stop because they leave. This, yeah. isn't, this isn't like a video game where that quest is just going to be sitting there waiting for them to go and trigger it when they want to go back to it. It's still happening. All right. So maybe that means you, you take a break from the main plot, which is point two here. Let them pursue their thing. And then maybe they miss a whole chapter and they weren't around to stop it. And now it's gotten worse. 
or maybe another group came in and stopped it. And now those people are like the local heroes, and your friend, your your characters are like, what the, what the fuck? We were That's cool, so great. and everyone's like, no, we love you know these new heroes now. We That's forgot so about you because you left left us. I love like doing that. You know, do stuff like that to them uh, because their actions have to have consequences, and then they can be around to do the next thing. Maybe they team up with the new heroes. Maybe they're rivals, which is even better. Uh, but you know, keep them at, remember that. Just because your players aren't interested in what the bad guys are doing, that's perfectly valid. They don't have to be. The bad guys are still going to be pursuing whatever it is they want. That is a concept in PBTA in Dungeon World called fronts. Um, yeah, because like like if you were in a war, you're fighting a war on multiple fronts. And when you focus on one, you make progress towards it. But the other ones you're not focusing on make progress themselves. It is very important to yeah remember that you have a living, breathing world. So if we do kind of want to, we've touched on um, taking breaks and all of that from the main game. Um, I am actually a vehement believer in this, especially if you are running a pre-built campaign. Um, I like to do what I call uh, downtime between chapters. And it is literally, yeah. I have, we have finished a chapter, my players have been doing this, that, and the other thing, they're going crazy, doing ba da 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 give them a couple sessions to just breathe and just do what their characters want to do and have fun. And that's where the weird sessions come in. Some of the best sessions have come out of that stuff too. Yes. And it's character development and it's just fun, chaos, whatever they want. Um, Honestly, I think this might help uh, balance out the amount of players that are like, constantly going off and doing other stuff while you're trying to railroad them or trying to go for the main story because like oh you have your downtime it's just not right now and i think i think it satisfies the because you're going to have a mix of, of people and, and personalities most of the time uh with with parties you know our group the dms after dark i think we're a little unique in that we all have very we tend to have be all like role players you know and, and there are people who are more like power game tendencies within there or or whatever, but we don't have we don't have a lot of people who are just like okay. I just I'm concerned about what my character can do and playing him as secondary. I think for the most part we're all about our characters and role playing them. But some people, most home groups will have a mixture, and you'll have the people, especially in a Pathfinder game, where they, they're all about the numbers and crunching and the tactics and you know what spell slots they have and all that sort of crap. And you're gonna have the role players too. And doing what Sarah says, it gives everybody a chance to have their time. You know, you might have just cleared out a bunch of ogres out. You might have just cleared a bunch of ogres out of a castle, right? Uh, and everybody had a great time, you know, with a bunch of combats. But now you have a couple sessions in town where the role players can just chill out and do role playing stuff. Yeah, um, actually, that we one kind of touched on this in our how to prep our own one shots because as a one shot, you can kind of have that downtime session, play a different game within it within your world, or just play you know, uh, completely unrelated to the plot thing, flashbacks, however we want to talk about it. Um, But also, yeah, I think that um, spotlight is obviously always a thing. Like we talk about, if you have your heavy role players, give them opportunities to do those things. And if you have combat tacticians and people who want to crunch numbers and power game, make sure they have engaging combats. That actually leads into our pros and cons of published material, I think, pretty well. Um, Because... The pros are you have a story out there, right? Like you have the adventure, you have the challenging encounters written for you. You don't have to worry about coming up with something that's going to um, make sense within the narrative and all this stuff. Um, But the cons are you might not always have 
varied types of scenes, right? Like if you're running a dungeon crawl and somebody shows up and they're like, I'm playing a bard who only wants to be a performer on the world's greatest stage. And it's like, you're going to be in the Underdark for six months. Like, shoot. You know what I mean? Um, Not that there aren't opportunities to perform, but you know what I mean? Like probably not a whole lot of social encounters unless you make them happen, right? Um, But um, one of the pros of published campaigns is even if you know, you're running one and you have another, you can always kind of borrow great set pieces from other games. Um, you know, there might just be one combat where you're like, that is the coolest encounter I've ever seen, but I'm not going to run three books of this AP before I get to it ever in my life. So I'm just going to plug it into another game I'm playing. You know, that's the nice thing about published adventures is that you, all this material is there for you to use. Yeah, mine the um, hell out of them. Use them for other systems. Use the ideas for other systems. Use the maps for exactly. other systems. Use the villains for other systems and just reskin them. Yeah, yeah, everything. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I would say a major pro for me, and it might kind of be obvious, but um, I love not every adventure is balanced, but like I just love that it's already set up to for that growth. And for me, actually, the biggest thing that I love about pre-done adventures is that the treasure is already there. Like I don't have to look up lists of treasure or coin and stuff like that. Um, I my biggest suggestion would be like if you have a pre-run adventure, write that stuff out on a list so that you're not spending time kind of reading that out when players encounter that. Just like throw them a card with all that stuff written down. Um, Oh, yeah. Index cards are huge for that. Also, though, I would say, Jess, sometimes you run a published adventure and there's all of that pre-generated loot that's, you know, going to be helpful in the adventure, but you don't have a two-handed weapon user Mm -hmm. in your party and they just scored a sweet great axe. Well, I would say that's a perfect opportunity to go back to your outline and be like, okay, you know what? This would be cooler instead of it being a great axe. It's going to be a like singing sword or a rapier or something like that. So that way, um, that's one thing I it's do with character. all of my campaigns. Once I have my list of characters, I literally have a little chart where it says like, what items would be good to give to these characters at like, you know, different tiers mm-hmm. or levels or whatever. Um, and that way, if I ever come across a moment where it's like, this is what's in this giant's hoard of treasure mm-hmm. or whatever. And I look and go, no one's going to want that. I just go to that chart and just go like, all right, who hasn't gotten a good, you know, good magic item in a while? And I just grab it and I go, this is in there instead. I will also say similarly, and this is a very, very minor thing, but it is something that makes me happy is uh, if you're writing a game that has levels, uh, APs often have like, hey, they should be level seven by this point. That that helps me a lot because I am Mm -hmm. really bad at tracking levels. I can't tell you how many times I've asked my players, what level are you guys at? While well, I'm thinking of other things. Uh, so the fact that a lot of the books have that is just very helpful to me. I think it's a very, I think that it's, and this goes back to actually something I said in my interview with Jess uh, a little bit, uh, which you should listen to in my interview with Jess and all of our interviews, which are out now every Monday over the next six weeks. But, Maybe. Uh, but... I think it's good to start with a, with a published campaign. If you if you want to run a longer oh, form campaign uh, and it, this is your first step, you'll start probably start DMing with one shots so you can just get a sense of what it feels like to sit at the table. If that doesn't make you run screaming out of the room, then you probably want to move on next to running a campaign. That's kind of everybody's goal is to be the DM. Start with a published adventure. 
Uh, and no, if you're a no. DM, your goal is to run a campaign. Oh. Okay, yeah. Yes. Not that everybody's like... goal is being the DM. I understand that completely. Yes. I understand that if you want to be a DM, though, you want to run a campaign. But start with a published one. Uh, and I think it's very important to don't just like pick anyone. This is where it gets back to what I was saying to Jess. Like, find one that captures your imagination. And that, that was what started with me. That's what kind of made me a lifer. Uh, because if, if you like that thing and, and you're excited about it enough, that's going to get you through all the bullshit you're going to go through as a DM that's going to make you want to walk away from DMing. Yes. Uh, you know, all the frustrations and kind of the growing pains you have of learning how to do it correctly. I will also say something that is a huge help in starting to run campaigns uh, as the person who is going through this exact thing is if you've played in a campaign that you really liked and none of your players are involved in this new one, run that. Yeah. The entire reason I picked Rise of the Rune Lords is because I, in undergrad, played through the first three chapters of it, and I have nothing but fond memories of it. Um, it's been years since then, but I remember loving it so, so much. So when I was like, all right, time to buckle down and run a campaign for the library, I was like, you know, no one has Pathfinder. We have a copy of Rise. I have a copy of Rise. Let's run Rise. And it's been so fun to be able to revisit that again. And it also helps because I remember a lot of it way better because I already played through it. Um, so if you've already played through it, you have a perspective on it. DMing gives you a whole new perspective on it, but you still have that pre-existing knowledge to fall back on, which can help make you a lot more comfortable in running it. I'd even say you have a really good perspective because you have a player's perspective. Because one of the downsides of being a DM and having just running something is you can think, you think as a DM, you think as, as, as the person running the game, you don't see it from the other side of the table. And if you've played it, you know, you know the like the fog of war effect where you don't, you know, oh, we're going in this thing. We don't know what this thing is. You know how you felt when you went through those parts of it. So yep. you know how your players are going to feel. Yeah. Are there any cons that people are kind of thinking when it comes to running pre-written ones? I mean, it's probably the same thing as like running a, what's it called? Like a linear campaign. You know, you're kind of structured a little bit and you're stuck on those plot hooks um and so if your party does move off from those plot hooks and you want to continue the story in the direction they're going then it's just a little tough right you have to be a lot more creative um and you have to be a lot you have to use your imagination a lot more i think one of the cons that i've noticed with rise of the room lords in particular and i think this is just pathfinder general as a game but it can be it can be true with other games too is that in dungeons and dragons they're built for one style of play Pathfinder particularly is built for people who are like power gamers, you know? And so if you hadn't like optimized your characters to like the tightest possible degree, they will get destroyed in certain fights. Like Janesha, right? Like we, our party of like just doofuses who, who are not optimized, we're just fun, cool characters. Although we're kind of coming into our own now, but Janesha would have destroyed us at 7th level if you hadn't gotten in it. And I know you nerfed her in a little bit. Uh, but... Yep, because her AC was obnoxious for the level the characters yeah. were at. And, so and even just... even lowering it, we had a hard time hitting her. Yeah. Yep, I well, I lowered her AC and gave her some hit points to make up for it. But her AC was obnoxious for the level they were at. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's that's part of the game, right? Like yeah. You gotta know what kind of game you're yeah. playing. Um, Pathfinder and D&D, they say they have three pillars, right? Exploration, social, and combat but we all know that they're really just combat simulators that's what those yeah. games are that's what they are um you know you don't need a grid to uh to, to have a social encounter you know what i mean like you shouldn't have to roll a die to know if you can persuade someone you can just have a conversation but that's what those games are for they're you know i, I just i think that the con there is either a 
having players who aren't that and then they just get destroyed and wind up not having fun because you didn't know enough about it as a DM or B, falling in the trap of thinking maybe that's the only way to play a game. Yeah, there, there's a million ways to run any scenario. You just have yeah. to find the one that fits you and fits your players. Yep. This might be a con for just Jess, but there's just like so much reading for no, no, you're right. adventures. No, you're right. You know what I mean? Because yeah, like right. I, I just want like the main storyline, but then I gotta read through like how this room is laid out and like what color the furniture is and all of that just to figure out what the plot hook is. And uh, I hate that. <laughs> you know what you would like, Jess? I have to show you City of Mist, it, which is a powered by the apocalypse game, Rainy. Oh my uh, god! Yes, sir. But um, yes, sir. It's really cool. It's like um, urban fantasy, like noir. But um, when they design their plots, it's just an iceberg, and they just have this thing. It's like here's the top. Here's where you start. You can oh, go here yes. and here and here and here and maybe here. It's just you, and they have this like outline, so you can just look. At, you don't have to read any necessarily the whole thing. You can just look at the outline and be like, okay, this is what the, could happen in the adventure. And then, you know, you only have to go and read the section where people go to. I will pitch uh, I will pitch a wonderful blog that uh, if you are a D&D person, uh, you should totally know about. And if you're a DM, you should totally know about uh, the Alexandrian is an amazing blog uh, where this person talks about uh, games and how to run them better and how to think about them, design them, everything like that. And he has a very good series called How to Prep a Module, which was kind of the you know, inspiration for this. And one of his is, you know, make notes. Like Jess said, I hate reading in D&D, especially if it's like a dungeon and it's like this room and then like you have that little text box to read and it's a bunch of set dressing. That doesn't matter because they're not going to focus on any of that. They're just going to focus on the fact that there's a shadow in the corner of the room and it's a combat. None of that stuff mattered. So what he says is read that and then rewrite it for what you care about. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just throw that other stuff out. And like, if there's something important or like you want to highlight, like, oh, the, the, you know, the curtains in this room are billowing. So like, maybe there's a window open. Like, it's kind of like you can drop those little hints, mm -hmm. but you don't have to read this long winded explanation that tends to be in uh, some of the D&D &D campaign stuff. The boxed text. Yeah. Well, and that maybe that is a con, right? Um, you're stuck with the voice of the author who wrote it right? Yeah. Um, until you make it your own. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that can be a pain because you might love the concept for a campaign, but just hate how it's written. And then you have to go through and you have to tailor all your notes to be like, I love this idea, but I just need to do it my own way, you know? And I will say one of the things that has helped me the most in kind of tailoring it and kind of getting it to where I need to do, if you own a physical copy of the book, sticky notes. Everywhere. I sticky the shit out of my copy of Rise. Uh, oh, gee, okay, that is, Rainy is showing us his copy of Dungeon World, but holy shit, <laughs> that's a lot more. But no. Color-coded and no, labeled. Sticky notes are your best friend. Use them, abuse them, they're lovely. Done and done. So, we have all run a published adventure in this crew. Uh, I know that Amber has run some. Do any of you have a favorite adventure path module campaign that you've run or even one that you haven't run and you just go i will one day run this because it's just speaks to you so is it so because my answer is going to be different are so are we just talking ones we've run or intend to run or any can we touch at any that we have played yeah that counts because my answer is different depending on which one it is give give both sarah i will Let the give people know. both uh so um 
in terms of running ones, I mean, Rise of Rune Lords obviously has my whole heart. Um, it's nostalgic for me at this point. Um, it has been, if I'm doing my age math correctly, which give me a second. You only have to count to like five, like, right? <laughs> Shut your mouth! It's been seven years since I first played Rise of the Rune Lords. Well, six, because I we end of the year, but six since I last played it. Uh, seven since I started playing it. So it's been a long time, uh, but getting to play it again getting, and getting to run it again has been absolutely amazing, and I love it beyond words. It has its flaws, absolutely, but I'm having an absolute blast running it, and I love just a lot of the areas and a lot of the world. Um, in terms of pre-written ones, I have played it. We already touched upon it this episode. It's the Call of Cthulhu Hudson brand. Um, mm. We had a three-person party for that one, and it was incredible uh it was so much fun i had never played call of cthulhu before then and it was like call of cthulhu is like a bucket list rpg for me um i had always wanted to play it and so getting to do it not only play it but also in the victorian england setting of hudson and brand which i actually know a lot more about uh than like the traditional 1920s setting so i was way more in my comfort zone um, and just getting to play that was a huge fucking treat. So if you have not played it or read it, recommend the shit out of Hudson and Brent. Um, Amber isn't here, but she definitely would have talked about, because uh, she always pretty much does, uh, Curse of Strahd. I was just going to say, it's yes. Strahd. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, she, uh, yeah. She super loves oh, Curse yeah. of Strahd. Wait, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> And let me let me try and recall some of the things that she says. Uh, Curse of Strahd is like it's perfect little. It's like a mini sandbox that actually isn't a sandbox. All of the areas are laid out really well. I would say also a lot of the NPCs in Curse of Strahd are very very rich. Like it, the world is just very rich in terms of like the story, the setting, and the NPCs. Um, I also really love. I hope this isn't a spoiler, but I also really love how they set up Strahd. In Curse of Strahd, as a villain, like they created a really great way for a villain to kind of appear and to continue appearing and continue like being the enemy of the PCs without like completely being destroyed until the end. Which is such a hard thing to do in D and D. Yeah, it's so hard. Mm -hmm. It's so hard, and and they did a phenomenal job of um, kind of presenting his influence and then presenting him and then. Um, presenting a story for that. So I know she would definitely talk about Curse of Strahd. Shout out to What are you, yeah. on, our way, on our way to Cornville. I have only actually run Pathfinder Adventures. I had read Curse of Strahd, but I've pretty much, I think, only run Pathfinder. I don't know that I... Love any of them? Have a favorite. That is such um, a Jess answer. <laughs> I don't really like this, but somehow I keep coming back. Well, but like I see, but we've talked about this. Jess hates the crunch, hates all this reading. She runs Pathfinder. And yet, even when she runs Pathfinder, you're running Agents of Edgewatch, which is like the most like, let's be cops of a I know. role. Like, it's like, I know. that's a weird call, you know? <laughs> yep. Um, and, I, and I am enjoying Agents of Edgewatch. It's got, a, it's got some, how they handle culture is not great. I will say that. But yeah, I feel like... You are the prime candidate for find what you actually love cool. and run that. I feel like you've really struggled to like, uh, but again, you've you've talked about your, um, you know, uh, 
relationship with role playing games <laughs> so far. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I get think it. that I wish I was the one who got to interview Jess because I would have delved into that. Like I know Amber's just going to yell at you for like an hour or forty five <laughs> minutes, sure. but I, yeah. I would have been like, sure. I literally would have like you know put you on a leather couch like fucking Freud and been like, so Jess, let's get to the bottom of why you hate role playing games. Just, yeah, but I think I think we've talked about it. I, I want to actually do that as a special episode at one point. We'll drink <laughs> again, and I'm just going to question yes. you about your, your, your strange love hate relationship. Yeah. I am totally okay with it. I am absolutely okay with that. I would say I agree with Sarah. I think my favorite, and it could also be because it was my first, but my favorite adventure to play in was Rise of the Rune Lords. And I, that was, yeah, that was my first one, probably like around the same time, maybe like nine or eight years ago. Um, Yeah, it really does every classic thing you want a fantasy RPG story to do. It's very good. Yeah, I think my favorite, I didn't actually run it, but I think my favorite to run would have also been curse of strahd yeah Hmm. yeah i am we've talked about my relationship with horror and like every time i hear people go all in on curse of strahd i'm always like i don't get the appeal like i just don't get it it's but uh hate me internet that's fine send me hate mail (laughs) i liked it i just i you know the thing that I loved about it was really just all the NPCs. I loved the NPCs in Curse of Strahd. That was the great part for me. It's flavorful, for yeah, sure. Yeah, flavorful. But. If you guys want a really, really dark kind of weird campaign, there's like a Pathfinder third party called The Blight. Hmm. And it's funny because I hate zombies, but it's like a total world of undead and uh, in a city. But it, that's, a, that's a great – that's an interesting one, too. All right, I guess I I guess I'll go, Christian. You'll you'll round us out at the end. I have um, two, so you go and. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, I guess it's funny. I don't have the opportunity to talk about a campaign or AP or anything I've ever played in because I've never played as a player in a published adventure. I've only ever played in people's homebrew games. I'm a forever DM. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of it. I think I like guest spotted on Lost Minds of Fandelver once and I was like, meh, I mean, I ran this. So uh, I guess this is a tough one because I've run a few published adventures, mostly in Pathfinder, Starfinder and D&D, obviously. And it's tough because we all know how I feel about Dungeons and Dragons. I've talked about how I feel about Dungeons and Dragons Randy hates it. Wait, really? I didn't know that. Well, no, I know. listen. Uh, I I think it's a great game. Don't get me wrong. It just tells a certain kind of you know story, what we a very need? specific story. You know, we need we need three jingles. All right. There's yep. so we have good society. Sarah talks about good society. Brady talks about power by the apocalypse. Randy and Christian and talk about D&D. how they hate D and D. Yeah, I don't hate D and D. Okay, l- mostly listen, Randy, I don't... but like Christian, you get it with him. I do sometimes. Let me, let me... Yeah, it has its issues. You definitely. I don't hate D&D as a game. I hate D&D's stranglehold on RPG culture. That but is very valid. That is That's very fair. fair. And I That's agree. Um, because it's not the best game for most tables, and yet it's the only game most tables play. So, I've run a few. I've run Storm King's Thunder twice now, and I would not pick that at all. Tomb of Annihilation was okay. Meh, I guess. Um, Lost Mine. Fine for an intro adventure, but there's like no real hook. I love Lost Minds of Fandelver. It's it's fine. It's it, great, it, beginner. It's it, yeah for mechanics. It's good. It's fine. Um, I'm gonna say my favorite published material I've ever run is actually Starfinders Against the Aeon Throne. Um, it's a three book AP, so it's a nice short one. Um, 
And it's very, I don't want to say railroady. It is though, like, but it does it in a very smart way with Starfinder um, because you are landlocked on a planet for the first bit. And then you have to go and do a prison break. So like, it's all very confined, right? Like you can't deviate too much um, from the story. And it's very good. And it was like that science fantasy that I just loved. It's a great, very, um, very hateable villain. Very easy, yeah, very easy to run, easy to read, very, very satisfying. Uh, highly recommend Against the Aeon Throne, Starfinder. I have, like, dream ones I want to run, and like like Rainy, I uh, I didn't, I can't say that I've ever, outside of Rise of the Rune Lords, which is my favorite, because that's the only one I've ever run in by default. I'm just going to jump in with the, you said, like, like a dream one, because I forgot that that was one of the things. I would love to run Band of Blades, mm. the Forged in the Dark, um, Band of Brothers-esque, you know, small military squad getting through a war-torn battlefield of zombies. So Jess, presumably you're out, but um, <laughs> it's like a lot of undead and, and craziness, but like you have to get across this uh, terrifying battlefield to safety. And I love those kinds of movies. So like, I'd love to run that kind of campaign. But anyway, sorry. Oh, that's okay. So uh, yeah, so published. I- I'm going to say Rise of the Moon Lords because I'm, I'm I'm legitimately having a, a wonderful time playing it. It's really awesome, uh, and I've never really I've, everything I've played before that as a player has been run, a homebrew, and I've been either not played playing or a DM uh, outside of that. Um, as far as favorite I've run, I will say our Hudson and Brand game was, was absolutely my favorite. I love, love, love that so much. Like Chara, like we share this thing with Victorian London in England. And like, I just, I love the Victorian era so, so, so much. Uh, and I can, I can research that and never get bored. Uh, I've written adventures in it and pub, they were been published. So I, I really, I loved inhabiting that world and that campaign. I hope we get to pick those characters up someday. I miss soon. them so much. And as far as like what I'd love to run, there are two. Uh, one is Masks of, again, I'm going to try to pronounce it, Nihilarthaltep, uh, I think. Um, but that's like considered one of like the best published adventures ever, period, bar none in any system. Uh, and I read it and I'd have to agree. It's, it's really amazing. Uh, so I would just, I would just love to run that just to see people like and how they play it. Uh, and it's a really cool kind of like Indiana Jones world spanning adventure uh, with crazy Cthulhu crap thrown in. Uh, but with appropriate stakes for it, too. It's like the world is literally on, on the balance. Uh, and the other one, which is not entirely published yet, but it's and it's actually part of a community content program for RuneQuest. So it's not even published by the official publisher. Published through the Jonestown, Johnstown Compendium, which is Chaosium's third-party or, or third community content publisher. Uh, his name, the gentleman's name is Andrew Montgomery. And it is... Uh, it's, a, it's going to be eventually three books, but uh, six seasons in Sartar, The Company of the Dragon, and, and the last book is going to be called The Seven-Tailed Wolf. Uh, and they are, uh, it's a RuneQuest campaign that takes place in um, kind of before the official timeline of, of the game rules begin. But what's amazing for me is that it, it, a lot of stuff in RuneQuest is like really, really epic. And there are some particularly epic things that happened like only like a couple years ago in the history of the world. And this like leads up to it and lets the characters be like a part of that. And I always love when you build, you build something in where you can have the characters actually be like, hey, you were the ones that were there that did this. You know, this really cool thing that happened that was you guys. And, and it does it in a way that isn't railroading, which is really cool. 
So I would love to run that. And I said that in my interview too. Uh, one day I'm going to run a RuneQuest campaign for all you assholes. Yeah, yeah, I'm down. I'm ready. So I had actually one last follow-up question. Ooh. And it was just, what do you guys prefer? Do you prefer running a campaign or do you prefer doing a homebrew or doing like a homebrew from an existing setting? So for me, I think I appreciate and I continue to buy published adventures and published material. I love the writers at Paizo for their APs. I think that they're very well written and I read those for fun because I think that they do such good things with the structure of campaigns um and also set piece combats and encounters and stuff like that you can get a lot of really great stuff to plug and play but for me i'd love being able to riff and go off in any direction whatsoever so i guess for me it's almost like a combo um at this point i've digested so much published material that i think that i kind of just piecemeal stuff together yeah i reskin it and i personalize it and i kind of just make things happen. Um, running a homebrew game right now for the first time in a while, and I'm loving the story that we're telling um, with my home group. But it's one of those things where um, I do miss the just being able to show up on game day, open a book and go, okay, here's exactly what's going to happen, you know. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I was going to say it's kind of a trick question for me too, because they're both just very different and they both exercise kind of different muscles, right? They both require work, but different kinds. Um, so I switch back and forth between both. It's usually because like I hate one and I'm tired of it. So then I move on to the other and then I hate that and I'm tired of it. And then I move on to the next. I'd say that, um, yeah, it's a, I, I'm going to, I'm very similar to Rainey's answer, which, you know, like Rainey, I also buy and read adventures for fun. It's like a, it's a hobby of mine. Yeah. We have a problem. Like, what yep. the hell is this? We need problem. an intervention. <laughs> no, we don't. Uh, try to make me go to rehab and I ain't going to go. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a combination. Uh, I, I read and I, I particularly am a fan of games that have a really strong community content creating, creating around it. Like when games allow that, like fifth edition D&D does that a little bit too. I haven't dipped too much into like D&D, DMs Guild stuff, but I love chaos. Like embraces it fully. They have like ambassadors that they've hired or employees of the company who are like, "Oh, hey, you want to write something? Here's our SRD, and here's how you can do it, and here's how you can self-publish." And you know, they take a big cut of it. But um, it's great because people are people are like passionate about it, and, and there are groups on Facebook or, or other places where people are like, "Hey, I wrote this adventure," and everybody kind of gets involved and you know talks about it, and people run it, and they want to hear about it. And I've I've ran people's written adventures, and then like message them and be like, "Oh, hey, I ran this. I really liked it." Never expecting like a, a reply. I just know that like I've have published stuff out there that like if anyone ever messaged me, by the way, if you do do this, if you ever buy one of my adventures and you run it, Sins of Saints and Arrows, one of them is published. Uh, Night Mother's Moon's going to be out with Stygian Fox soon. If you ever run it, please, for the love of God, tell me what happens. I would be overjoyed if I got that text or email or, or find me on Facebook, send me a message, email DMs After Dark at gmail.com. Say, Christian, I fucking hated this. I don't care. Just tell me what happened. Um, but. I like that because I like seeing other people's ideas and, and I can get excited about it. And even if I read something and I know I'm never going to run that adventure, like Rainey said, I can take an idea out of that. I can take a, 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 maybe the setting in the town, maybe an NPC, maybe a set piece or an idea, maybe a little piece of the lore of the world that's in there and I can use that. Or I can take that and I can apply it to another world. 
That's true because people come up with really cool shit. Yeah, like there's like, so much creativity out there, and I love that. So, and, and some of the stuff, sometimes some things capture my imagination so much. I'm like, no, I really, I want this at my table, you know. And other times it's like, hey, I really like that, but I want to do my own thing, you know. And I'll add some of that, uh, but we're doing our own thing too. So it's a little bit of both. And, and I think like like you, I'll do I'll do one till I kind of get tired of it or I get burnt out, and then I'll switch. I don't know if I have a preference. <laughs> You haven't That's run any fine. homebrew stuff there, but you're starting to. Yeah, I so so what I what I'm attempting to do, um, I will say, I, I'm trying a little experiment where I am basically taking a chapter out of Rise of the Rune Lords, lifting it into the air, and yeeting it into the ether, and replacing it with a homebrew chapter. Wait, did you just um, say you yeeted it into the ether? Sure, <laughs> sure. Okay, that's awesome. All right. Uh, I so. I don't know how it's going to work. I've got some ideas. I've got a lot of stuff I'm working with, and my players have given me some beautiful, beautiful knives. Um, so I'm just going to do that and see what happens. And, you know, maybe I'll report back at some point. Who knows? Someone remind me that I said this and then ask me in, like, six months. <laughs> Will we'll do. do. We'll <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah. Let, me just, let me just say, uh, since we started DMs After Dark, I have become such a fan of, like, five session runs and then just calling it you know what i mean uh i've kind of lost the drive to want to run really long stuff i think it's um like i'd always go back and revisit things but i i love short digestible arcs i like that sense of of closure that you had you get you know even like the Mm -hmm. the two i think hudson and brand we ran for eight or nine sessions before Something we just, like that, yeah. We, we kind of wanted to take a break from that. Uh, and then the Fate superhero game I ran was 12. And I had planned 12. I said to everyone, we're going to do 12 sessions of this. Think of this as our Netflix series. Each session is, was one of the episodes. And when it's done, it's done. And we can always have a season two. Yeah. But, you know, we can always, we can at least say that we finished this storyline, if we, even if we never go back. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. Have you guys ever fully completed like a campaign, a pre-written campaign? Yeah, I've yeah. completed a few Storm I've Kings never. once, Tomb once. I've never. Um, yeah, I got pretty far into. No wonder you're so tired, Rainy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm like you. You made it all the way to the end for those. <laughs> yeah, it's and you know you take your time with it. I think both of those took about two years with my home group. Like mm-hmm. I'm going on two and a half years with the library to Storm Kings, but we play bi-weekly, so it's, it's a little different. Yeah. Know, that one's going to take a while. Um, so, yeah, it's exhausting. And then it's hard to finish, right? Like, the, yeah. the ending sometimes is really hard to stick if you've played so long compared to a 10-episode, 10-episode, 10-session yeah. game, right? Um, which can feel a lot more neatly wrapped up because you don't have all of this stuff that you need to... Yeah, sometimes you've kind of just exhausted the characters as far as they can go, too. Yep. You know? After you kill right. someone's like mother or brother a hundred times, then what do you do next? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. I think with all it. of that said, killing someone a hundred times over, thanks for listening to this episode of Modified Rolls. <laughs> we, we're never going to have a normal intro, nor outro, nor episode, and you're just going to have to accept that about us, you lovely, lovely folks. And if you do love all of our weirdness, consider giving us a rate and review. We love it. It keeps us alive, and we appreciate it very much. If you want to check us out on other places, we are on all the social medias at DMs After Dark, including twitch.tv slash DMs After Dark, where we try and stream every other Friday, as well as our YouTube, where all of our past streams are uploaded. 
You can also email us at dmsafterdark at gmail.com with any questions. If you want to rant at us, yell at us, send us hate mail, send us love mail, all are acceptable. Especially hate mail for watching. And, uh, I'm only a little sorry this time. Not really that much, actually. Play more games. Fuck. Play more games. (laughs) (laughs) And end!